0: a machine, a State Department machine, that produces reams and reams of paper for everybody to read before they go into meetings, but that paper is not necessarily produced based on best standards and evidence. We will see success when we fail and we don't necessarily blame the people who are carrying out the policy. We re-examine the evidence, we see what we did wrong, and we try again a different way.
1: Hello, I'm Alex Bolfres. It's my pleasure to welcome you to FP21 Minutes, a podcast dedicated to evidence and integrity in foreign policy. We bring you conversations between practitioners and researchers about how American foreign policy is made and how it can be made better. This week, we are joined by Daniel Balki and Aaron Faust. Both are active founding volunteers of FP21. And have poured gallons of sweat equity into building the intellectual and organizational foundation of our young outfit. Our guests will introduce their background. After they do that, the conversation touches on the difference between training in foreign policy versus that in the military. Possible ways of mobilizing outside expertise. The possibility of bringing design thinking into the foreign policymaking process, especially when it comes to the design of decision memos. Finally, both Daniel and Aaron share their views on what constitutes success for FP 21 As you listen to the conversation, please keep in mind that the views they expressed are their personal takes, not those of the institutions that
0: employ them. My name is Aaron Faust. I am currently an Iraq analyst at the U.S. Department of State. Before that, I worked in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. I have to provide a disclaimer that nothing I say today represents U.S. government policy, and it is totally my own opinion based on my status as a volunteer with FP21. I have a Ph.D. in Middle East history and statecraft from Boston University and have lived in the Middle East for a number of years and wrote a book called The Bathification of Iraq, Saddam Hussein's Totalitarianism.
2: My name is Daniel Balki. I am a strategy and operations officer at the World Bank in the Fragility, Conflict, and and Violence group. I've been at the bank for a few years in a few different roles. I I previously worked in the Middle East and North Africa on refugee issues and post-conflict reconstruction issues. I started off at the bank working as a writer for President Jim Young Kim, who is the now former president of the bank. Before that, I spent a few years at the Treasury Department in the Office of International Affairs, working primarily on Latin America issues. I'm also now pursuing my PhD in political science at University of California, Berkeley. I'm in my third year. What drew me to FP21 was my belief that utilizing evidence more systematically and more effectively in U.S. foreign policymaking and policymaking more broadly will help to improve the lives and the welfare of billions of people policy that is enormously consequential for the lives of people across the globe, demanding that we draw on the incredible data, information, analytical tools and approaches that are relied upon across several spheres of life, from business to, to sports to medicine, can dramatically improve outcomes in policy and by extension, the lives and the
0: welfare of those
2: who policy affects
0: the foreign policy realm unlike in the military realm or even in the intelligence community is based on ad hoc decision making is based on personal experience and doesn't always go through a rigorous process whereby we check the evidence challenge assumptions And look for the best ideas and how to make those a reality as opposed to battling over turf, representing what in D.C. we call equities of wherever we show up. And that to me leads to poor outcomes, whereas the Department of Defense has doctrine up the wazoo and you go to boot camp when you first get there and you spend weeks and weeks doing these things. When my neighbor used to work on uh, nuclear submarines, he had to spend six months in a course just learning about how to work on a nuclear submarine before they would let him set foot on it. When you join the Foreign Service, you spend a few weeks at A-100. When I joined the Foreign Service, I got no training and I was shipped out to uh, a country to do a mission. And it was awesome, but I had to learn on the fly and I made a ton of mistakes because I had to do that. We need to do better training We need to design our processes and our policies a lot more thoughtfully and based on rigorous processes and analysis and evidence. And that's what produces the integrity in the policy. There is a machine, a State Department machine that produces reams and reams of paper for everybody to read before they go into meetings. But that paper is not necessarily produced based on best standards and evidence that, for example, in what works in negotiation or what works in peace processes or how to end civil wars or all the things that political scientists try to teach us. Even those good diplomats who know how to deliver the points and know how to extract concessions aren't necessarily doing it for the right reasons. We need to start treating diplomacy and foreign policy making the same way we train our intelligence analysts or our military folks. We need to develop uh, statecraft standards that are agreed-upon standards through the community about which there is rigorous evidence that shows that there are certain practices that work better than others so that we stop making the same mistakes over and over again. We send right now people to learn Arabic for two years so they can then use it in post for a couple of years. That just shows that the State Department and our foreign policymaking establishment what it's willing to invest in. But it's not really willing to invest in sending people to get degrees in data science or in analytics As a result, I think we are falling behind. We need to start treating foreign policy and diplomacy like the profession it is. To marry the training, the experience, and the evidence is something that we really need to do. How do you do that? Obviously, we need more training at the beginning. We need more training in the middle, and we need more training when folks get into the senior foreign service. And The State Department really needs to value that, and they need to value expertise in particular topics. Sometimes folks don't want to admit that they don't know or they don't feel like they have time to ask. And so we need a, a repository of people who can provide those things, whether inside or outside the government, on a short basis. DOD has 11 federally funded research and development corporations. The State Department has none. Though there is an industry of, quote-unquote, beltway bandits that have built up around the humanitarian assistance and development industry, mm-hmm. there really isn't one when it comes yeah. to diplomacy. The department needs people who are cleared, but who don't necessarily work in the building to research the questions and find the answers from a longer-term strategic perspective that the department and that the NSC and that our diplomats want to know, instead of having to pull from a DOD or USAID-funded study or from something else. Once we start to see diplomacy really as a technocratic profession that could use that kind of improvement, that's when we'll start to get somewhere.
2: What I'd love to see is big recruiting pushes for young academics in in political science and related fields history that have the expertise that is sorely needed for our foreign policy. Looking at an academic job market that was already extremely difficult as universities have faced the fiscal crunch of COVID has gone to an even worse place. These are brilliant people who have much to offer, many of them trained in international affairs issues or in specific countries or regions that would be of extraordinary value to the process of U.S. foreign policymaking, whether it be as members, of faculty members or or staffers at the State Department Office of Social Science Research that I've heard you talk about.
0: Another thing I would love to see more completely integrated into the department, State Department, and into the NSC process is design thinking. Design thinking can actually take you to a lot of these relatively simple what seem like simple, in the end, uh-huh. fixes or improvements to processes and even policies, even just uh-huh. systematically thinking through processes uh-huh. or policies, recommendations, and changing them as we test them and iterate and prototype right. and all of that. Facilitation. Uh-huh. People who are trained in techniques to lead conversations and move, build teams, build trust, and move people most efficiently toward the best possible outcome. In addition to design, there are all kinds of different methodologies for thinking Mm -hmm. through problems, agile software development, all kinds of things like that have just become the normal way that the private sector business these days and the most successful companies that have the biggest return on investment use these technologies. They use data, they use design thinking, they use analytics, and we should too.
2: Be a more practical tool that I've become quite enamored with refining the humble decision memo the simple two to three pager four pager that you send up to the senior official that sets out an issue gives some context and and then sets out maybe two or three options and then recommends one.
0: The, the humble decision, men, decision memo can be very powerful because it's the way people ingest information. And whether that's a memo or whether that's graphic and data or charts or some kind of visualization of the evidence, we need to be producing the things that are going to be most impactful and yep. successful and tailored to the leadership of the organizations and their preferences so that it meets their learning styles.
2: We can do a lot more with these changing this format and template of decision memos on consequential issues to mandate that analysts or whomever was involved in drafting the memo set out the the data and the evidence that they drew on to formulate their their recommendation the causal logic of their argument what feeds into sort of the state of the world that you think your recommendation will produce and how will we know it when we see it and when can we expect to start seeing it? How will we know when it's not going to happen? And when can we expect to see that? And how will, you know, the efficacy of the recommendation be monitored and, and evaluated? I think you can actually do a lot of that within memos by changing sort of the memo process. You can also magnify that to the level of of a fully fleshed sort of policy proposal. Administrations should be really thinking about whenever a new big policy proposal is that they put one forth should feature all of these things. What is the information that went into this decision stating this clearly? What is the causal logic we expect to happen? What does success look like? What does failure look like? When will we know and how will we monitor? Having this conversation, I think, with the public, obviously keeping sensitive information sensitive, but having a more transparent discussion with the public and with Congress, I think would help produce more robust policy, more trust in the integrity. Aaron, to use uh, the wor- your word, which I think is is absolutely correct, the more integrity foreign, more integrous foreign policy and better outcomes, ultimately, rather than, I think, the superficial discussion that colors much of our foreign policy debate right now. Success for FP21 means that when the president strolls into the Oval Office and gives the solemn televised address to the nation at 10 o'clock Eastern time on a crucial issue, on the key foreign policy step that the president is about to have our country take, that the presentation of that is based in the framework that FP21 has articulated in its framework report. It is clear on what the policy is. It is clear on the, just as we've discussed, on the information that was gathered and and used to formulate this policy, clearly stipulates to the American public the causal logic and the step-by-step sequence of events that we anticipate will happen, what success looks like, what it will mean when we know we're succeeding, when we can expect that to happen, and crucially, what what it will look like if if we don't. If you look back at some of our most well-recognized foreign policy failures, a lot of it centers on people being able to make the case that it's not clear that this is not working. Putting some constraints on what success is, which means that veering outside of that constitutes signs of failure, laying that out to the public too is something I, I would love to see the president do. And I would love for the president to, in his address to the nation or her address to the nation, make it very clear how progress is going to be monitored and what will happen if success appears like it's being achieved or if we appear to be going off the course. I'm very animated by this notion of more transparent discussions between policy elite and the public and between policy policymakers in the executive branch and Congress. The situation I just laid out for the president addressing the nation. I would love that to be the basis of congressional testimony and discussions between executive branch witnesses and members of Congress.
0: We will see success when we fail and we don't necessarily blame the people who are carrying out the policy. We re-examine the evidence, we see what we did wrong, and we try again a different way. We will also see success when we see the entire foreign policy establishment from the president to the NSC to Congress to the State Department, and to all the other agencies pulling in the same direction very effectively. Right now, these organizations or agencies go up to the Hill, and they try to provide as little information as possible to get through the hearing and justify the policy that has been made with relatively little input from Congress, so that Congress feels like it has to pass laws that, in fact, restrict our options when we're making foreign policy provide onerous reporting requirements for these agencies, sapping energy and resources. Mm -hmm. U.S. foreign policy has the ability to, and whether it likes it or not, has a huge effect on the world. When it's done poorly, it affects a lot of people all over the globe, and it affects Americans to a significant degree.
1: If you had a chance to read this week's newsletter, you'll have seen that we're supremely excited to have received our first grant from Carnegie Corporation, Until now, FBE21 has been an entirely volunteer effort. Even our theme composer, Ronan McDermott, is still waiting on the bottle of whiskey I promised him. The good news is that this generosity from the Carnegie Corporation will help grow the community and get more people involved. Plans are underway. Speaking of money, we also have a donation button now. It's pretty, it's shiny, so it's inconceivable that you wouldn't want to click it. We would certainly deeply appreciate it. Another item you might have seen in the newsletter is that Ryan will be stepping back from his role as chief scribe to focus on his new government job. Congratulations, Ryan. Another staff departure I'm sad to announce is our intern, Emma Jobson, who has done a lot of terrific work behind the scenes on this very podcast, the fruit of which will become apparent in the coming weeks. The item in the newsletter that caught my eye was from an article that Rosa Brooks wrote for the New York Times. She's the author of the terrific book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. She has also served as a policy advisor at the Pentagon and is a Georgetown law professor. Her main argument is that we need to broaden our understanding of competence. It's, of course, worth reading in full. The element that I especially appreciated is that she calls out the need for competent citizenship. Here's a quote directly from the article. We need citizens who understand our political system and who are capable of evaluating competing arguments, and we need leaders capable of developing and carrying out wise policies. That sentence, to me, really encapsulates much of the drive behind FE21 and its focus on process. You can almost call it the plumbing of foreign policy. It's our bet that injecting evidence processes into our government institutions will help leaders develop and carry out those wise policies, and just as importantly, help citizens evaluate competing arguments. If we can move closer to a culture that values articulating the reasons and evidence for one's policy positions, whether that's inside the government or the way the executive branch explains its decisions to Congress or to the American people, we as citizens can, if we so choose, be much better informed about the kind of leaders we wish to elect and to evaluate their work once they are in office. As Aaron and Daniel discussed, the United States government remains the most consequential organization for humanity. It doesn't just exert the most influence in shaping our present, but creating the conditions for humanity's long-term future as well. So to me, working to improve the quality of American policymaking goes far beyond serving the American people's interests, although we want to do that well too. So, isn't that donation button enticing? That's all we thought you might want to hear this week. If it wasn't, you can file a complaint at podcast at fp21.org. Encouraging comments and ideas for future episodes are, of course, welcome too. The podcast is brought to you by FB21, a nonprofit dedicated to the promotion of evidence and integrity in American foreign policy. You can find out more about the organization, how to get involved, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website at fp21.org. We tweet at fp21.org. Special thanks to our intern, Emma Jobson, and to Ronan McDermott for composing our theme music.